Today on Students Over Systems, we're celebrating parent advocates. Lance Izumi joins us to discuss the Great Parent Revolt and why the middle class needs education freedom. Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. On today's episode, we're focusing on why middle-class families need school choice. For this important conversation, we're joined by Dr. Lance Izumi, Senior Director of the Pacific Research Institute's Center for Education. He's the former two-term president of the Board of Governors of the California Community Colleges, And he's written numerous books, including Not As Good As You Think, Why the Middle Class Needs School Choice, The Homeschool Boom, and more recently, The Great Parent Revolt. Lance, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. I really look forward to being able to have a really great discussion with you today. Well, let's step aside from education freedom, school choice, our favorite topic here at Student Server Systems, and talk about some things that are happening in California I uh, am very much aware of the fact that what happens in California does not stay in California. It's the largest education market with, I think, like 6 million K-12 to public school students. So when you all, and you're based in California still, yes? Yes, that's correct. When, when you all pass uh, or ad- adopt a math framework, a thousand-page math framework, it impacts not just the California students, but likely will impact students around the country. Tell us what's going on with the California math framework. Well, you know, uh, there are lots of things that are uh, problematic with California. One of them is this uh, California math uh, framework that uh, has just been adopted by the California State Board of Education. And as you mentioned, Ginny, uh, it's one of those things when California catches a cold, the rest of the country gets it, you know. And so uh, I think that, you know, uh, people may not be seeing some of the things that are happening in California right now in their states, but they have to be uh, cognizant of what's happening in California because what happens here will usually spread like a virus, unfortunately, to the other parts of the country. In this California um, math curriculum framework, uh, there there are two real big problems with this thing. First of all, I mean, there are lots of woke social justice aspects to this uh, framework. I mean, we think of math as being one of the subjects that should be immune from this uh, infusion of social justice, DEI, all the uh, CRT, all these other types of, um, uh, you know, race-based ideologies that are infecting our classrooms. But unfortunately, uh, if you look at uh, our California math framework that has just been adopted, there's been a lot of injection of social justice uh, into that uh, uh, into the curriculum. I mean, a lot of it I- involves like how you might address word problems that, uh, you know, you can uh, have a uh, an addition problem, but have a very woke social justice oriented word problem. And so, you know, like, you know, how many policemen beat up so many, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, that sort of thing. But the, the other thing that's actually more problematic than uh, the, you know, uh, woke stuff, uh, at least in terms of uh, the, the obvious social justice oriented uh, problems that uh, may be coming down the pike is the fact that in the name of equity, and this is the important thing uh, for your listeners to understand, is that equity is being used as the bludgeon to change really how math is delivered in our state. Uh, equity, you know, uh, for your listeners, 
is different from equality. Equity means the same results for all students, regardless of their talents and their abilities. Uh, whereas equality means you, everybody gets the same opportunity to succeed based upon their talents and abilities. And so in the name of equity, what has happened in California is there's been a reduction in the rigor of California's math curriculum. And so what you're going to have is uh, algebra, for example, uh, being taught to almost all kids in the ninth grade instead of the eighth grade, uh, which means that it, uh, these kids in California will not, in most cases, be able to get to calculus by their senior year in high school. And why is that? Why, why would you want to prevent kids, especially those who have uh, um, a talent for mathematics, have the ability, have the incentive to want to do well in mathematics from reaching calculus in the 12th grade, especially when it is uh, often a requirement for selective universities. And so why would you want to do that? Well, that's in the name of equity. Uh, because you don't want to have some kids doing better or being or outpacing other kids that you're all going to homogenize uh, these kids into a kind of a, a, a lowest common denominator whole. And therefore, they're all going to end up, uh, you know, getting to uh, the 12th grade, you know, basically having taken all the same classes, even if some of those kids could have advanced you know, at a, a much greater pace had they been given the opportunity. And I think that what's going to happen is that this is especially going to affect kids uh, who are minority kids who are in uh, uh, low income areas because they were the ones who uh, have all historically been the victims of the bigotry of low expectations. And when you don't give uh, these kids the opportunity to excel based upon their abilities, well, you're going to have, again, uh, a, a, a very... Um, you know, low level result for all kids, including those kids that uh, these uh, the the framers of this curriculum uh, purport to want to help. The cutting off access to higher level math is obviously a concern and uh, no one should end up surprised that this is going to be problematic. Uh, you had written, I believe, last year that an open letter was sent by California math and professors um, indicating that a warning that students will be unprepared for STEM and quantitative majors. So that's more than 400 math and science academics from California colleges and universities sent this open letter pointing out the key deficiencies of this, this framework. So the higher education system is aware that there's going to be a problem and they, they warn the state board, this framework's been adopted and we'll see how it how it plays out. Things aren't great when it comes to math in California to start with, though, right? You all aren't exactly top of the top of the states with your math results. Well, it's, it's actually horrendous. I mean, if, if you look at our math results on what, whichever test you want to look at, our state test or on the National Assessment for Educational Progress, the NAEP test, which is often referred to as a, a nation's report card, uh, California's math uh, results are horrendous and. Um, you know, you you have, um, uh, it doesn't really matter which group you look at. I mean, if you look, I mean, people uh, assume that, well, the reason why California's math uh, results are poor is because, uh, you know, we have a large percentage of kids who are minority or low income in this state. And while that is true, it's, uh, if you look at all um, uh, economic uh, groups in this uh, state, you have large groups of kids who are not proficient in mathematics. Uh, in, you know, you can have you have kids who are middle class kids, more, uh, kids who are more affluent from affluent families, and yet they are not proficient. 
in mathematics, according to these various exams. In fact, uh, you know, you have uh, the half or more of kids who are not uh, low income, who are middle class kids who are not proficient in mathematics, uh, you know, especially at the eighth grade level, which is really the grade level that you want to look at, because that's the level where kids are going to be, um, you know, getting into the more difficult mathematics subjects, and which would determine whether they get into college or not. And so, uh, you know, when you look at uh, our math results, yes, you know, we have uh, very low results, low proficiency levels for kids who are low income, various minority groups. But again, it's it's overall, you know, you have uh, whether it's socioeconomic groups or uh, ethnic groups, the, the lack of mathematics proficiency has infected every one of these groups. Mm-hmm. Let's pivot and talk about some good news. You wrote in the midst of widespread school closures, which was, of course, bad news, uh, the 2021 book, The Homeschool Boom, Pandemic Policies and Possibilities. So tell us why parents at that time and now as well are, can, are choosing to homeschool their children. Well, I think that you know, there are a lot of reasons why parents are uh, choosing to homeschool their kids. I mean, yes, we did see uh, during the pandemic a huge uptick in um, uh, the, the number of kids who are being homeschooled. I mean, you saw, for example, based upon U.S. Census Bureau data, that uh, the proportion of families in this country that were homes that decided to homeschool their kids doubled in the first year of the pandemic. And so it went from 5% of the population of families uh, to 11%. And it was even more in uh, some of the uh, ethnic uh, 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 subgroups. So for example, African-Americans, you saw a uh, quintupling of the number or or proportion of uh, African-American kids who were being homeschooled, going from 3% of families to an amazing 16% of uh, African-American families who are homeschooling their kids. You know, it's similarly amongst uh, Latino families, uh, more than double uh, the percent, uh, the proportion of families in the Latino community who are homeschooling their kids. So you had a huge increase in the uh, number of uh, kids who are being homeschooled, not just uh, in certain segments, but amongst all segments of society here in America. And I think, you know, part, people assume that the reason is simply because the um, uh, the regular public schools had been so bad when it came to actually implementing uh, a uh, education during the COVID pandemic. The distance learning uh, programs were, uh, in many cases, uh, you know, implemented in a half, you know, in in, in a poor, very poorly. Uh, implemented way. And, uh, you know, the, the teachers, the administrators were not familiar with the way to implement these systems. And therefore, you had uh, kids who were basically uh, failing uh, because of the inability of the schools to be able to implement a, uh, you know, a, a, a efficient and effective distance learning regime during the COVID act, uh, uh, pandemic. You also had uh, the various um, mandates that a lot of families were concerned with mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Uh, so there was a lot of incentive for uh, families to uh, leave the system. But also, too, I think it's important to understand that a lot of families, uh, the reason why they left was the pandemic was really the straw that broke the camel's back. They had been dissatisfied with the um, performance of the regular public schools for a long time. And, if, and you know, it's interesting to see, for example, even publications like uh, The New Yorker, which uh, had a great article on 
the increase in African-American families who decided to homeschool uh, during and after the pandemic. And a lot of the reasons given by these African-American families was because uh, the regular public school systems in places like Detroit and lots of other places around the country were failing their system, failing their kids for years and years. Historically, they had been failing their kids. And so that's why they decided that they were going to homeschool their children because you had a bad system to begin with that was then, uh, you know, implement trying to implement uh, systems uh, for which they were even less effective than in-person learning. And it all uh, came together to spell doom for those kids if the, those parents didn't take them out of the regular public schools. And what's interesting is that even, as I say, in The New Yorker, you had a lot of uh, testimony by these parents who uh, were saying that, uh, their kids may have been several grade levels below, uh, you know, normal or the where they should have been. And yet, you know, after homeschooling them for a year, they were back up to grade level. And I think that it shows the power of homeschooling because the parents, you know, get to uh, choose the curriculum that really fits the particular needs of their individual child. Uh, and again, it once again underscores how parents are the ones who are the best judge and the best evaluators of what their children need. And homeschooling really gives them that ability to uh, fit, fit and mold that curriculum to their child's needs. Right. They really have a wide variety of, of choices, flexibility, personalization. You, you talk in this publication about all the opportunities that come from uh, technology and all the different learning models. And um, it, it really can be quite shocking how many curricular options there are. If you go to a homeschooling fair in a state like Florida, it can, it can be daunting, um, but parents are navigating this. Um, do you have a sense of how these parents who are new to homeschooling are figuring out how to do this? Well, I think that uh, one of the great things about homeschooling today in America is that, you know, it's um, a lot more organized. Uh, it's a lot different than uh, the, the way it was maybe 30, 40 years ago when homeschooling was really getting off the ground. Now there are a lot more options for parents, especially new parents who are just uh, deciding to get into homeschooling. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, in my book, The Homeschool Boom, what I do is I profile different families, different people who are involved in the homeschool movement. And, um, you know, to, uh, to show, you know, that how diverse a movement this is to begin with, but also the different types of opportunities available to parents. Uh, and one of the people that I uh, interview is a woman named uh, Alicia Carter, who is the head of a charter school homeschool. Uh, and so uh, in her charter school, kids come for a day or two a week, but then the rest of the time they're homeschooled by their parents. And she told me that the reason why uh, her, her charter homeschool was so popular was because it's a way for new parents, especially to get into homeschooling, but not have to take on the entire responsibility that there's still, um, you know, somebody involved like uh, a school or a teacher who is assisting them. And therefore they feel more um, comfortable uh, starting the homeschool uh, to homeschool their kids. You know, uh, you have other uh, people that I, uh, profiled who uh, joined homeschool co-ops with uh, groups of homeschoolers. So, I mean, I think the one of the big myths in, in homeschooling is that homeschooling is always just the mom or dad at the kitchen table with their kid doing homework or doing uh, their curriculum. And while that is part of it, uh, there is that that misses a huge 
part of the picture of homeschooling in modern America because you have these homeschool co-ops. Um, and I profiled uh, uh, two people who started one together, one uh, a conservative Republican, one a liberal Democrat, and yet they came together and started this homeschool co-op because they agreed on what was necessary to educate their kids. And so I think that what homeschooling does, it, it brings together people uh, in neighborhoods, in communities, uh, across different uh, boundaries and to come together to uh, educate their children because they can see uh, you know, what their kids need in terms of the core subjects, especially. And uh, um, I think that uh, when you look at co-ops, you ch uh, charter homeschools, uh, you have uh, micro schools, you have, uh, you know, these, a lot of different types of curricula available to kids. You mentioned, I alluded to that, Jenny, that there's lots of choices uh, available to uh, parents. There's a, a great website called kathyduffyreviews.com which has, uh, you know, hundreds, literally, of different curricula that uh, uh, they review so that depending on the needs of the individual child, parents have the ability to make an informed decision about which curriculum to choose that would best fit their child's needs. You know, in, in the book that I wrote, you know, I have uh, uh, parents who chose everything from a, um, a very, uh, you know, more structured type of curriculum, like classical learning uh, versus uh, parents who've chosen an unschooling model where basically it's much more student centered up to the child to decide, you know, what they're interested in and allowing the child to run with that. And so, you know, you, that, but that's the great thing about homeschooling is that it allows parents to be able to make their choices based upon the personality and needs of their children. And also, uh, you know, whether uh, they have a special need, I profile uh, parents who are uh, educating their special needs children, kids on the autism spectrum, for example. And I think that's really important for uh, your listeners to understand is that uh, people might think that, okay, uh, amongst all kids, the kids who may not be able to be homeschooled are kids with those special needs. But it turns out oftentimes they are the very ones who actually thrive the best in a homeschooling situation because it's their needs that are being addressed, not the needs of 30 other kids who happen to be in the classroom. Right. Okay. So those California parents who are concerned or very worried about the math framework um, aren't stuck in the assigned government public school, and they can choose to join this growing movement of homeschooling parents and, and find a lot of support there. You wrote another publication. You're a very prolific author, Why the Middle Class Needs School Choice. And with education freedom programs around the country expanding from limited eligibility, meaning that they are specifically designed to serve families with a lower income or families of children with special needs, now they're moving to more universal eligibility, meaning all K-12 students in the state are eligible to participate in these school choice programs. Clearly, state legislators in at least 10 or so states uh, agree with you. The middle class does need school choice. But tell us about the arguments that you were making in this publication. Well, you know, as I alluded to a little earlier, Ginny, uh, it's important for people to understand that the um, ineffectiveness of the regular public schools you know, it impacts not just kids of a certain demographic, not just kids of certain certain racial ethnic groups, not just kids of uh, with certain uh, income, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. It impacts everybody. I mean, one of the things that I did uh, in my book, uh, not as good as you think, why the middle class needs school choice, is because 
is uh, to burst the myth that just because you know you might live in a leafy suburb, your school may be you know uh, beautiful looking, the football team may have a great record, you know. But beyond, if you get past that kind of Potemkin village facade, what you find inside is that the same types of um, of, of uh, academic problems are occurring in those schools just as much as they're occurring in uh, the schools where you might think would have problems, let's say the urban inner city, for example. And, you know, you can see that, you know, uh, in different different measures. I mentioned, for example, if you look on various test measures uh, in the core subjects, you find out that kids who are coming from middle class and more affluent backgrounds are not doing well in the core subjects of uh, reading and mathematics. One of the things that I did in my book, uh, Not As Good As You Think, was to look at uh, the uh, college preparation for uh, kids in middle class and more affluent high schools. And what I found was huge percentages of those uh, uh, high schools in California, which was the original book, uh, Not As Good As You Think, was based uh, on schools in here in California in middle class and more affluent areas. And uh, what I found was that on the college preparatory uh, tests that were being given by the state university system, you had large percentages of kids in these more affluent areas who were failing uh, the, the test and showing that they were not prepared for college. And so therefore, uh, you know, whether they had a high GPA uh, at their high school or not, <laughs> didn't really matter in a sense that uh, they uh, were going to be going to college not prepared based upon the examinations that the universities were given. And that's of special interest to me because, as you mentioned in my introduction, Ginny, you know, I served as a two-term president of the Board of Governors at the California Community Colleges. And what we found in the community college system, which is an open admission system, but if kids were entering our system not prepared for college-level work, the very small percentages of them were eventually going to get a degree and transfer to a four-year university. And so therefore, it was very important for those kids to be able to be prepared for college. And I think that, um, unfortunately, many of these uh, schools in middle class and more affluent areas where we assume that they're being prepared, they aren't and are therefore uh, going to end up failing in higher education. And that's a a real problem uh, for uh, not just those kids, but for our society as well, because it's a, a huge loss for going to be a huge loss for our economy that uh, these kids are not going to be getting out with the degrees that we need to have them man the economy that we want. Well, something that we really focus on at the Independent Women Forum's Education Freedom Center is making sure that parents are fully informed and fully aware of what's happening in their schools and that we're acknowledging the problems while also pointing to the solution, which we believe a primary one is education freedom. I find though, sometimes those, those parents who live in those leafy suburbs really don't want to hear it. They, they don't want to know that their, that their schools aren't as good as they think they've paid a lot for their mortgage and they are assuming that they're getting their money's worth. So do you have any suggestions on getting the message across to parents who are, are so bought into the system, literally, through their mortgage and don't want to hear otherwise? Well, you know something, uh, all I can say, and that is true, Jimmy. Uh, I mean, I, I've found that to uh, be the case. You know, you go to uh, states where, you know, you might expect that there will be a huge uh, school choice, pro-school choice movement. And yet, uh, especially in some of these red states around the country, and it turns out they really don't want to hear that. 
you know, partly because uh, they uh, may live in uh, uh, some place where they've made huge personal investments uh, in order to buy into a, a district which they thought was a good district, but which they, you know, it turns out it's not. I think that what parents need to do is be able to face the truth. Really, I mean, there's uh, sometimes the truth hurts, and but if they fail to uh, face the truth, then who's going to be hurt by that? It's not necessarily they who are going to be hurt by it. It's going to be their children who are going to be hurt by that. And so, um, you know, and I think that what we're seeing now, uh, it, you know, in uh, a lot of areas in the country where the parents are protesting over uh, the indoctrination, their kids are getting the political indoctrination uh, that uh, kids are receiving. I think, uh, you know, that that ties in with the lack of academic performance in a lot of schools. You know, you Middle-class parents, more affluent parents are now seeing that uh, their kids are not just getting uh, poor academic um, uh, education, but they're also being indoctrinated as well in, uh, you know, ideologies that they do not support, that do not meet their values. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think that you're seeing uh, greater interest uh, amongst middle-class parents in school choice, because now they are seeing how this is affecting them. You know, it's not ju- it's not just the fact that uh, you know the, the state or national tests are showing that their uh, children are not performing well in reading and mathematics. Now, their uh, the children are bringing home homework, you know, that is pushing values that they do not support, and uh, that go contrary to their belief systems. And I think that because of that, you know, there is this push now. Uh, this is again when we've talked earlier about you know the straws that break the camel's back. I think this is the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of uh, pushing um, uh, parents from these more middle-class areas into the uh, school choice camp because they can't get away from it, right? It's not just uh, the schools in, let's say, the urban inner city, which may have uh, historical uh, poor performance academically that are being indoctrinated. I think what you're seeing is that this indoctrination is happening, you know, in the leafy suburbs as well. And it's now come home you know, uh, to these parents in these middle-class areas. And uh, they're seeing that their children are now being turned into people that they do not recognize. And I think that is what is uh, changing their minds and getting uh, them to push for universal school choice programs, you know, as the ones that you and I have supported for many years, right? Uh, and, and I've always said that I support a universal system uh, because there are so many problems that, in the public schools that uh, affect, you know, uh, parents regardless of their socioeconomic background, and I think that uh, this indoctrination is uh, really number one on the list, really right now, that is affecting uh, parents regardless of uh, their family income. Right. We tried for a long time to awaken parents by pointing out national NAEP scores or state assessment scores or making sure that they knew how to find information about how their school was serving different subgroups. And that didn't really do it. But this indoctrination, the prioritization of activism over academics, that woke them up. And you wrote about these parents in a recent book, The Great Parent Revolt, including uh, one of our Independent Women Forums fellows, Nicole Solis. And I'd, I'd love to, to know, uh, I think I get a sense here of what inspired you to, to write the book. Um, but what were, some of the, what were some of the stories that you told in, in this book? Well, uh, thanks for mentioning it. Yes, I, I, my most recent book is called The Great Parent Revolt. And it focuses on 
uh, how parents and, and students and local people are rising up against critical race theory in the classroom. Uh, critical race theory, for your listeners, uh, is really basically uh, Marxism, but based upon race. So instead of having oppressor and oppressed classes uh, based upon income, uh, wealthy versus poor, you have the oppressor class and the oppressed class now based upon race, uh, whites, uh, sometimes Asians in the oppressor class, and then uh, the oppressed classes being other non-whites. And so the thing that uh, we did in uh, that uh, in this book uh, was to profile people who were fighting that indoctrination that is going on in the classroom. We had a student, for example, uh, in California, who uh, we profiled, who talked about how in a class on leadership, he was made to stand in a privilege uh, walk uh, line. And so the students were lined up and uh, shoulder to shoulder, the teacher at the head of the class who would call out privileged traits like I am white, I am male, I am Christian. And every time one of those traits applied to a student, that student would have to take a step out of line and take a step forward. And uh, Joshua, who was the student we profiled, said that, look, you know, we're being singled out for traits where we have no control over it. And why am I made to uh, feel uh, bad, uh, be the focus of negative attention in um, front of my classmates because I'm the only white male in my class? And so, you know, that's what's going on in the classroom. Then we have people who are fighting uh, against what Joshua is going through. We had Gabs Clark, who is a poor, widowed mother of uh, five uh, kids who um, is African-American, so poor, she was living in a um, cheap motel room. And yet when her son was deprived of a high school diploma because he refused to engage in a critical race theory inspired exercise, she sued in federal court. And even though she was poor, had all of these strikes against her, she sued and was able to get a favorable decision uh, from the school that uh, they uh, turned around 180 degrees, gave her son the diploma and settled out of court. And so, you know, you have people like that who are rising up despite their uh, difficult situation. You mentioned Nicole Solis, who's associated with Independent Women's Forum. Uh, you know, she was worried about the critical race theory uh, curriculum in her daughter's elementary school. The school and the district refused to uh, give her the information about the curriculum, refused to be transparent. And so she filed not just one, not just two, but she filed 160 uh, different uh, public records requests in order to force the school district to divulge what was actually going on in the classroom. We had other people like uh, Kelly Shankowski, who, uh, you know, used the Public Records Act request as well to find uh, that her school uh, was implementing critical race theory uh, through the device of ethnic studies in her California school district. And so you have all these uh, people who we, who we profile, incredible stories, uh, you know, you're based in Virginia, Ginny. Uh, we have uh, Azra Nomani, who has been very uh, active in the battles over the admission system in Thomas Jefferson High School. And, uh, you know, she's a single mom, uh, Indian immigrant, uh, is Muslim. Her father actually marched with Gandhi against British imperialism. And yet, you know, she was being told that she was uh, basically white adjacent and being part of the problem, you know, in standing up for a meritocratic uh, admission system at uh, Thomas Jefferson um, because, you know, uh, it was the changeover from the merit-based system to a um, 
you know, a, a, a much more subjective system was hurting Asian American kids. And so therefore they, uh, she and a group of other parents sued in federal court. And I believe that uh, suit is going through the, the system right now. I think the bottom line is that what we want to prevent is uh, something that, and I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book is uh, where we uh, interview Xi Van Fleet, who is also from Virginia. And Xi Van Fleet is an immigrant from China. Uh, and she actually survived Mao Zedong's you know, murderous cultural revolution in, China, in communist China, which uh, killed uh, one to two million people, ordinary Chinese people. And uh, she said that what she sees happening in America is what happened in China during the cultural revolution, where uh, the, uh, she saw red guards who were basically shutting down all kinds of speech. Uh, destroying uh, people's lives because they believed in old ideas or old culture or old customs or old habits. And that uh, this, uh, you know, uh, they, the Red Guards basically canceled anybody uh, who were uh, assumed to uh, have any of those beliefs. And I think that, and, and Xi Van Fleet says that that is happening in America. And she thought she'd never see that happening in America. And she says that you know, unless we wake up and do something about that, we're not just going to lose our freedom. But she points to her experience in communist China, where people not only lost their freedom, but they lost their lives as well. And that we're coming to that point in America where it's, um, you know, uh, not out of the realm of possibility where those sorts of things can be envisioned. Well, thank goodness for parents who advocate so strongly for their children and shine the light on on the problems. And I appreciate your approach to these books, which tell these individual stories, whether it's homeschooling or uh, the Great Parent Revolt. You're telling these these stories, and and we really value that at, at IWF. Um, we think that courage is contagious, and parents need to hear what uh, what their options are and how it's possible. And parents also need to hear that if you are concerned, you should speak up, and here's how. So thank you for providing resources for them on that. As we wrap up, let's return to my favorite subject, I think it's one of yours as well, and that's education freedom. We ask each of our guests to tackle the school choice myth that bothers you the most. Well, I think that uh, the myth that really uh, irritates me, and it's one of the things that I really want to focus on in the books that I've been writing, is the myth that school choice is only for certain people, you know, only for parents who are of kids who, you know, are, are very active, uh, they have a great interest in their uh, kids' education, or their kids have certain abilities, uh, and that, uh, you know, they are the ones who uh, uh, school choice, I mean, uh, uh, is made for. And basically, it's the kind of myth uh, of cherry picking, that only those kids who have a lot of abilities are the ones who, and their families are the ones that support school choice, when that is absolutely, totally untrue. That is a myth. Because uh, when you look at uh, the people who benefit the most by school choice, you know, I, I, I look at the hardest cases. And uh, in my books on charter schools, on homeschooling, <clears throat> on the Great Parent Revolt, all of the, 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 the people that I, a lot of the people I look at are the people who have the most difficult cases. And so, for example, in, uh, the, uh, in my book, Choosing Diversity, uh, which uh, I wrote uh, a few years ago, which was on model charter schools in the country. Uh, one of the thing, schools that I focused on was the New York Autism uh, Charter School. And uh, it was started by two parents who used New York's uh, charter uh, school law to uh, create a school for autistic kids 
because the regular public schools weren't providing that type of education. And so therefore, they as parents use that school choice mechanism to set up their own school to address the needs of their autistic children. And it's become a hugely successful charter school in New York City. Uh, As I mentioned uh, earlier, in my homeschool boom book, I focused on parents who have kids who have autism and other special needs. One of the uh, parents that I uh, focused on uh, had a, a, a child who was on the autism spectrum and who was doing very poorly in the regular public school. And uh, when she decided to homeschool her child, uh, now her child has uh, a problem with actually seeing and uh, reading the words, but is very good uh, using audible books and audiobooks. And so by the time he was eight years old, he was, uh, after she took him out and started to homeschool him, by the time he was eight years old, he was able to read the entire, through audio, an audio book, the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. So for your listeners who have never uh, seen the Lord of the Rings book, it's like over a thousand pages. It's one of my favorite books, but I find it difficult to read through it because it's, you know, pretty complex. And yet here is this autistic uh, boy who is eight years old and who is devouring the Lord of the Rings. But that would only have happened had uh, he uh, been able to uh, um, have this opportunity to be homeschooled. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we have to understand that school choice is not just for certain people. School choice is for all people. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for reminding us of, of that as we talk about these universal programs, um, we shouldn't forget who's been benefiting for these, from these programs for 30 years. And often it is the most vulnerable students and we want them to continue to have these opportunities and to continue to thrive. Well, Dr. Zumi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you're writing. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you very much, Ginny. Well, I really appreciate being able to chat with you on your podcast and also uh, congratulations on the podcast. So it's a great uh, um, effort on your part and I look forward to all the ensuing episodes. Thank you. We hope listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to share this episode with your friends. To learn more about the work at the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.